Welcome to Edge of the Rabbit Hole, everyone. I'm Mike Ricksecker, author and ghost historian. With me, as always, is Vanessa Hogle, my co-host. And, of course, down in the chat room is our chat shenanigator, Shauna, handling all things... Um, well, she's shenanigating everything down there, <laughs> handling all she's things chat. She's shenanigating. Uh, we have a uh, fantastic guest with us tonight. Uh, great, great guy. I've known him for a few years now. Eric Altman, um, big time uh, Bigfoot researcher, uh, does a lot with cryptids. I'll kind of give you the rundown here. Uh, you know, cryptozoologist. Uh, he's been the uh, founder and director of the Pennsylvania Cryptozoology Society, former director of the uh, Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society, uh, Bigfoot Real uh, Research Association, Bigfoot and Paranormal Society, uh, Goosebumps Paranormal Society. He's also the organizer and host of the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Camping Adventure and, and so much more. So uh, he's always out. He's, he's outdoors, um, always uh, you know doing this fantastic, fantastic research. So uh, Eric, hey, it's great to have you on tonight. Hi, Mike. Hi, uh, Vanessa. Thanks for having me on tonight. It's uh, good to talk to you, Mike, and nice to meet you, Vanessa. Nice to meet you as well. <laughs> so, uh, Eric, I guess, you know, just to kind of introduce you to our viewers here, our Mad Hatters that are filtering into the uh, chat room as we speak. Um, you know, I, I kind of gave the uh, the general, okay, these are all the organizations you've been to, um, you know, can you kind of run down, you know, what got you into uh, doing this type of research, how long you've been doing it, and that sort of stuff? Sure. Um, it goes back to 1980, actually. Um, Ten-year-old kid, fascinated with monsters and ghosts and flying saucers, and I always had the interest. But it wasn't specifically geared just towards Bigfoot until I saw a couple of films that came out, one of them being Legend of Boggy Creek which is a docudrama film that came out, came out in 1972 by Charles B. Pierce. And it was based on uh, Bigfoot or hairy-covered creature sightings that were reported in a small town of Falk, Arkansas. And uh, they went on from, I guess, the, back in the 1800s all the way up to the late 1960s. And he went down to Falk and made a movie about it. And I saw the film, and I was just blown away by the possibility that there was some kind of upright walking monster roaming the swamps and bayous of Arkansas. Shortly after that, I saw a second film called The Creature from Black Lake, and it was actually a fictional film about two boys that went down to uh, the Louisiana-Texas border, a little town, fictional town called Oil City, looking for a Bigfoot creature. And uh, both movies fascinated me and really sparked my interest in the subject. And from that point, I just... Uh, devoured any books I could find in our public library, newspaper articles, magazine articles, anything I could find on the subject. And uh, I was actually really stunned and shocked reading these newspaper articles to find out in my hometown of Greensburg, Pennsylvania, that there had been sightings of an upright walking biped that people were seeing. Even you know, in 1980, 81, they were still reporting these things. And Doing further research, I found out there was a long history of it. So from that point forward, I was hooked. Um, I just began to educate myself on as much as I possibly could on, on the subject matter, reading, studying, watching any kind of films or documentaries that came on TV, um, anything that I could get my hands on. And uh, yeah, I guess it was 1997, shortly after I got married, I decided to get involved in active research and go out in the field and start looking into these cases and seeing if they were real, if there was anything to them. Um, and surprisingly, I began to meet eyewitnesses who were claiming they were having sightings and encounters. And I, I just have been hooked ever since. Um, Eric, let me ask you, just as I've always wanted to ask people this, um, anyone that has, that has had a sighting or has done extensive research in this field, have you... What would you say the percentage is, the ratio of, of instances where they've had a negative experience with something like this based on a, a nonviolent or non-negative experience? Um, you mean like the creature doing something aggressive or attacking somebody? Yes. yes. And um, do you find that aggression is regional? Is it different in different areas? It, it seems to be. Um, there have been some cases um, that I've investigated in the Northeast that appear that this creature is more, I wouldn't call it 
angry or vicious, but more territorial um, displays of behavior as far as aggression is concerned, where it, it doesn't want somebody in their territory. So it's going to it's going to behave aggressively in a manner of throwing sticks, rocks, um, bluff charges, screams and, and grunts and stuff like that to drive the person out of their territory. Um, there have been cases reported and they're far and few in, in between, but there's very few that have happened where creatures actually assaulted somebody or, or tried to break into somebody's house or, or go after somebody in that kind of you know, violent, aggressive behavior. So those ca- those cases happen, but they're not not a common occurrence. They're more the exception, not the rule. Right, exactly. However, in the South, it does seem that um, people tend to have um, more aggressive encounters than they do, let's say, the Pacific Northwest. Um, for some reason, the creatures in the South, Southern states like Louisiana, Arcan- um, Arkansas, Texas, especially in the um, Southeast uh, Panhandle, the, the big, big thicket, as they call it, um, they tend to have some aggressive encounters that happen from time to time. Hmm. Just want to throw out there that we have a $5 super chat from Tammy Heitzman. She says, because I love that Vanessa is wearing glasses. They look great. Thank you. <laughs> so thank you very much, Tammy. <laughs> super chat, superstar. All right. So yeah, and on that note, Eric, so um, between the different regions, other than aggression, are there uh, you know different characteristics, uh, you know, like maybe you know size, whether it's foot size or, you know, re, uh, the reports of how, you know, tall they may be those change from region to region um i haven't really seen it myself personally but um talking with other researchers and the studies that i've done um, it tends to to seem that the creatures in the pacific northwest are much larger taller broader shouldered um a wider girth while here in the northeast they appear to be thinner leaner um not as tall as the creatures reported in the Pacific Northwest, and the same with the South. They, they tend to be like a, a thinner, more muscular build rather than a, a, a huge girth or, or mass size to them. Okay. Do you think that might have something to do with the length of time those areas have been populated by what you would call civilized folk or the the areas that they're allowed to roam that aren't in, that aren't inhabited or intruded upon? By us regular people, do you think that might have something to do with that? It's it's hard to say because um, if you look at the Pacific Northwest, there are vast areas that are unpopulated, um, forests and, and mountains and, and areas where there's not not many humans in, and they're much larger in size. So they may have a better food source, a population of deer per se, than than we would over here in the Northeast. Um, we still have a high population of deer, and we have a, a very valuable food source, but um, it's, it's hard to say if it's regional that these creatures are, are the size that they are, if it's based on food, if it's based on um, population, if it's based on terrain. It's really hard to make any kind of judgment as to why they, they are the way they are. And we have nice. a, uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We have a few things coming in here from the chat. First, uh, PSPR Paranormal Pursuits is, uh, hey, Eric, hope all is going well. Just talked to you yesterday on Facebook. So there's a uh, shout out there for you. Um, <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Fran is wondering, uh, do you feel that a female Bigfoot would protect their young much like a bear? Oh, yeah. There's been cases where um, there's people that have claimed to have seen a female creature that's shown signs of aggression. And uh, I would assume, and I'm speaking on speculation, of course, I would assume that it's either protecting its territory, a food source, or its young. I would assume they, they act very similar to bears and as much as humans do, are very protective of their offspring. You think they have a, uh, like a lot of bears will utilize caves. I mean, not all, but a lot. So you think maybe Sasquatch are using caves as well? Well, we've, there's never been any solid proof that these things live in caves or spend a good number of times in caves. Um, there's been cases over the years that report footprints that are found at the mouth of caves mm-hmm. um, or heading into a cave. And it's, it's a perfect opportunity for these animals to go into a cave and use it as a temporary shelter, especially if it's a harsh winter or rain or and seasonably hot, they can go in there and keep cool for a while and, and den up for a, a while. But 
I don't know for sure if these animals actually live and reside in caves. Um, they'd make a great place to just kind of hang out for a little while and sure. then move on to a different area. So what would you say then is the the most popular theory as to where they do stay? Um, I don't really think there is one, to be honest with you. There's so many different um, theories, right? <laughs> there, there's so many different theories when it comes to the creature. Um, theories about aggression, theories about territory, theories about diet, theories about um, habitat, where they live. Um, I think if we all could come together and come up with a, a good, solid idea of um, taking all these theories and putting them in a, a pot and, and saying, hey, okay, this is the most popular one, that folks could kind of focus on that idea and, and do more research. But I don't really think there is a one particular theory that really stands out among others. That said, is there one that you kind of like more than others that's maybe your favorite you kind of lean more toward? Well, through my research, I haven't seen um, any kind of data to support where they're residing. Um, if we had cases, and I could see a pattern where, let's say they were living in caves or residing in caves, if we had cases that were saying, hunters were saying, you know, we found footprints near a cave, and I see more and more of this repeating itself, then I could probably answer that with a little more confidence. But unfortunately, we, we get reports from all different types of areas and terrain, so it's kind of hard to pinpoint an area exactly where they're residing. I equate it very much to like looking for a needle in a haystack, but that needle is continually moving. Right. Now, you bring up a really good point, and I have to ask, do you think that it is testimony to their intelligence that they have yet to be caught, or do you think it's sheer luck? Oh, very much so. I think, I think they're, very, they're more intelligent than we give them credit for. Um, because we've been looking for this creature for going on close to 60 years now, maybe longer than that. And um, the best we can come up with is as researchers, amateur researchers, and there are a few scientists that are involved in this search, but the best we can come up with are um, scant tracks, uh, maybe occasional hair samples that, that don't really um, denote any type of DNA sequence as far as what kind of animal it is droppings and those droppings again don't denote what kind of animals leaving them um so it's but the droppings would denote diet the, the yeah the droppings would show their diet it would show the parasites that are in it um their system what what they're eating you know and that that might help us to, to learn exactly where these creatures are, are you know living at or staying at or what they're eating so we can try to track that but unfortunately a lot of the dropping results come back they either are known animals or they come back not classified and that doesn't mean it's necessarily a bigfoot it just means that we don't have a classification for we can't identify those particular droppings so it's it's, it's kind of a hard question to answer because i personally think they're more intelligent than we give them credit simply because they they avoid they seem to avoid game cameras they seem to avoid um leaving physical evidence to give themselves away um so I, I think they're very intelligent. I agree. Yeah, that that's and that answered Mickey Dole's question that she had in there. Uh, here's one from Shauna, uh, our chat shenanigator. She wants to know if you classify Bigfoot as an interdimensional being, or do you think it evolved from elsewhere? Well, that's that's a hard question to answer. Um, yeah, I know it's a the one of those theories out there. There may be interdimensional yeah, beings, or even aliens, or you know, there's there's a lot of them. Right. Out there. Yeah. Unfortunately, with this field, there, that's what you deal with is a ton of different theories. Right. There's so many speculations from people simply because they can't find an answer, so they try to solve a mystery with another mystery. <laughs> um, and that's, unfortunately, that's the, the, the raw truth of it. Um, I don't believe that these animals are interdimensional, but I don't think we have enough evidence one way or another to say yes or no. Um, I get cases, and I've investigated several cases this year, um, that have twists of high strange, strangeness involved with them that may have something to do with interdimensional beings. It may not. It might be something else involved with it, but it's, it's out of the realm of physical animals and their capabilities of what they're able to do. And, and I'll get into that a little bit later, but um, there are people that, that think that they're interdimensional and that's why we can't find them. That's why we can't catch them or we can't kill them. It's because 
we get close to them and they're gone. They, they travel off through a portal or through another dimension. Um, there are those who think that this creature comes from another planet. It's, a, and it, it's an extraterrestrial being that's been dropped here on Earth. And there are those, um, much like myself, that, that think this creature is an uh, undiscovered type of primate, unclassified primate. Um, so there's, there's so many different theories. The people that think this is a ghost that the people are seeing in the forest of a relic hominid. Uh, there's so many, so many theories. And nobody's right, nobody's wrong, because we have yet to prove the animal exists. So... Well, yeah, that's, that's a, a really good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> I love the honesty. Um, Absolutely. It, I wonder if the reason that they're so difficult to spot or or to try to not, for lack of a better word, catch is maybe they have a specific migratory pattern that during the times when it would be when they would be most likely to be seen by us humans they are in an area where they simply can't be seen by us humans. You, you know what I mean? I mean, maybe maybe they, they travel that way, not unlike Indian tribes did, you know, for food or for shelter, uh, for water. Maybe they're in, in situations like that. Do you think that's a possibility? That's very much a possibility. Um, I spent some time when I was younger, uh, before I got into the field research, collecting the data, the newspaper articles, reports from Stan Gordon, um, from other researchers around the country, reading a bunch of books and trying to find a pattern as that would show a migratory route, like times of year they'd be in this location. And, mm -hmm. and for Pennsylvania, I only found um, documented reports that show the creatures were in the eastern part of the state in the, I think it was the early 1980s. They appeared again in the mid-1980s in, in the center part of the state, and that was it. I wasn't hmm. seeing any pattern where they were moving back and forth. There wasn't clusters showing up in a certain area, then showing up in a different area that I could I could show that the creatures were moving back and forth. Um, the, the reports that we've had are so sporadic and so random. They show up, and they seem to show up in areas for a certain amount of time, and then there's nothing for a good while. We'll get one or two reports or or maybe a handful and then other times a few years later we'll get a cluster of reports in an area where you wouldn't think these creatures would be reportedly seen they just they're there why are they there what's going on in that area is there fracking is there development um is there farming you know what what's going on in that area and we look for those kind of answers and we're not seeing any any kind of pattern to, to answer why they're showing up in that particular area at that time. Um, a lot of it's just, it doesn't make sense. Gotcha. Yeah. So we have a uh, another $5 super chat. This one from David Y. He says, love listening while I'm trucking in my 18-wheeler. So thank you very much, David Y., for being a super chat superstar. Um, yeah, with that, I mean, you're saying east and then central. Uh, I mean, is it just maybe a, a population thing? I mean, of course, the eastern part of Pennsylvania is a little bit more populated than the central part, or does that change from state to uh, state? Well, I, I've seen it where, like I said, in Pennsylvania in particular, where I'm from, I saw it in, in the early 1980s where there was a cluster of sightings in the uh, eastern part of the state, and then it moved to the center part of the state, and there was no nothing after that for almost a decade. And we had a few reports in the western part of the state. Um, I didn't see any kind of urban development or explosion of population in those areas. Um, in the eastern part of the state, it's pretty popular. In the western part of the state, it's pretty pretty popular, or populated, I should say. But in the center part of the state, we don't have uh, a lot of big populated cities, especially getting in northern right. Pennsylvania. It's it's a lot more rural and um, open area, a lot more forested. And you would expect to, to see if these creatures are truly moving through the state, that's where they would Call, call that area their home because it's not as populated and a more abundance of food source, less human encroachment, less development. So you, that's where you would think you'd get the majority of reports, but you're not. You're finding them in um, the southwestern part of the state near Pittsburgh or over in the eastern part of the state near Lancaster or up in Berks County or even up into the Poconos on the northeastern part of the state. And, and like I said, there's really no rhyme or reason. I haven't found a pattern yet looking into this that really can try to 
explain why they're moving where and, and when to expect them. I was hoping to see something in my research so I could kind of predict where they're going to be so I could be in that area and start researching right. that area to see if something comes out. But it, it doesn't work out that way. Hmm. Interesting. Um, this one from Chanel F. She asked, what about the guy who says he has a dead one in his freezer that his dad found? What did you ever think of that one? That guy is, I'm, I'm assuming he's off of YouTube. Um, there's a guy that's a well-known comedian and a hoaxer, and he's been perpetrating hoaxes about Bigfoot on YouTube for the last four or five years. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that's, that goes with the territory. There, are, there have been numerous hoaxers out there over the years. There's, unfortunately, there's a couple of guys that um, captured national attention on more than one occasion by claiming they had a dead Bigfoot in the freezer. They were from Georgia. Uh, if you recall that back yeah. in, uh, I think it was 2007, they were on CNN and Fox News and all these big major news networks. They even had a major press conference in Palo Alto, Palo Alto, California about it. And it was nothing more than a monkey suit, a gorilla suit stuffed with uh, uh, deer and elk innards and stuff like that. Yeah, I remember so that. It, that happens all the time, unfortunately. So, so what do you think about, um, you know, the way the, you know, internet, social media, YouTube, all that has, has played into all this. Do you think it's, you know, done more harm than good, or do you think there are some benefits as well? Well, I'll probably take a lot of heat for saying this, but I think social media has really ruined Bigfoot research. Hmm. Um, and simply because, um, those who are truly interested in doing research have a lot more to wade through and weed out the garbage. And there's so much garbage out there on YouTube, on Facebook. Videos pop up all the time. Pictures pop up all the time. Um, there's a lot of folks out there that are doing good and, and trying to do honest, objective research. And there are those out there who just don't have a clue. And they're putting out stuff that just isn't Bigfoot evidence, although they're claiming it is. Right. And it makes it, makes it really difficult for the general public and for even for the news media, for that matter, to weed through all that stuff and try to figure out what's what is and what isn't legitimate or possibly legitimate re- uh, evidence and research. Eric, preach to that choir. <laughs> preach, <laughs> preach, preach. Mike and I say that all the time. Well, we get the same thing with the ghosts. You yeah. know, all those ghost that videos that are out there ghosts, and they're they're fake. Yeah. There's so much bullshit out there that for anyone that wants to hear actual evidence or see actual evidence or or hear real experiences the muck they've got a way through is pathetic yeah and it's pretty bad it, it really is and people eat it up it's like it's like the, the crappier it is the more far-fetched it is the more ridiculous it is it, it is it's gold and i for the yeah. life of me will never understand that well i've over the years i've gotten kind of cold to uh, social media when it comes to Bigfoot and, and the stuff that's put out there. I try to ignore as much as I can, not because I don't want to see what the good people are putting out there. It's because I don't want to get in the arguments with people. I don't want to look at evidence that I know looking at is, is bogus. So I just keep my mouth shut. I let the people put out the crap that they're going to put out there. I, I can't stop it. And if I say, hey, that's a tree bro- blown down from the wind rather than them saying, oh, it's a Bigfoot pushed this over. I don't want that argument because <laughs> it's unfortunately it's not an argument that's going to be productive and it's not going to do no. anybody any good. So I just keep my mouth shut. I keep doing my research. I remain true and objective to what I'm trying to do. And if others want to get involved with it and work with me on a, an honest, objective way, then I, I encourage that. Those who are out there just thrill-seeking and adventure-seeking and putting out garbage that isn't Bigfoot research, I try to avoid that. Good plan. (laughs) Good plan. (laughs) Um, We have a a lot of questions here. I'm trying to weed through them all. Uh, There's some good ones. So uh, this is from Spooky from Dawn. Is Is Bigfoot mentioned in Native American Indian lore? If so, what are they called and what do they think they are? Um, Yes. And Almost every tribe in North America and even in Canada have some kind of lore or tale that talks about um, 
some call them other giant Indians or other tribes, wild men tribes. Um, but there's in, in almost every tribe that you look historically, you can find some mention or some history of our, our first um, first American ancestors dealing with, living with, cohabitating with some form of giant wild man or, or Bigfoot-like creature. And as far as names, there are so many names. There's over 200 names that the tribes have given to these creatures, and I couldn't even begin to rattle off all of them. But Sasquatch we're familiar with. That came from the Chehalis tribe in British Columbia. Um, that actually was a term that was created by uh, John Burns, J.W. Burns, in uh, the 1920s when he was working with the Chehalis tribe. And uh, they called it, uh, can't pronounce it, it's Siskahavis or Siskahavis. And he, he termed the, the he coined the term Sasquatch. Okay. So even though it is a Native American term that we all think, it was actually anglicized by an American who was working with the tribe at that time. Um, wow. But there, there are so many different names of these creatures that are, the Native American different tribes use. Uh, here in Pennsylvania, uh, western New York and, and northwestern Pennsylvania, the Iroquois called it the Janosqua, which uh, is, is their language that translates to stonish giant. And these were these huge giant-like creatures that they thought had, had to hide like a uh, stone made out of stone because they would shoot arrows at these things and the arrows would literally bounce off their thick hide and they, they called them stonish giants. They were cannibalistic. They were afraid to death of these giant beings and, and they revered them rather than mm-hmm. the thought, the, thought of them as a pleasant, you know, cohabitant of the forest. Um, and a lot of, there's so many different tribes out there and it's fascinating if you spend the time and look up each tribe and the Bigfoot lore that goes with it, um, there's you'll find a story that relates to them. Yeah, you mentioned the the giants throughout North America, the giant wild man, you know, possibly the Sasquatch. Mm-hmm. Do you think that some of these bones that were reported to have been uncovered during like the late 1800s, which we know the Smithsonian at that time was destroying anything pre-Columbian, so a lot of these uh, remains were were completely destroyed. Do you think some of those could have been Sasquatch remains? It's very possible. Um, I haven't done enough research on the, the bones and the remains that were found to say yes or no what they were, but I, I'm familiar with that you know, there were giant bones found, mm-hmm. and there's still some bones that are being discovered to this day. A good friend of mine, David Weatherly, um, has been out to the Lovelock Caves, and, and he's told me about um, some of the giant bones that have been discovered out there. And I know over time, other researchers have investigated reports of these giant bones that have been found um, some some assume that the serpent mounds that we're familiar with or we're aware of may actually be burial mounds for some of these giant Sasquatch creatures or giant giants as, as we come to know them as. Um, it's very possible you know, that the Smithsonian did have them in their, their possession and they were Sasquatch bones. Um, I have a quick question. I'm not meaning to get off Sasquatch, but you you deal with cryptozoology as well. So it's mm-hmm. not just that one species that you're involved with um so my question is based on the fact that we that that you say that indians and different tribes have have history and talking about the this this different species that it isn't just that species um all over the world you can go back hundreds if not thousands of years and find documentation on things like this or shapeshifters or werewolves or vampires they all show up somewhere in history it's always been my belief that even though i can't prove that they walk the earth today that i do believe that those tales are based somewhat in fact is that something you agree with or do you think that they were just almost like boogeyman tales from well i think in certain situations they might have been used as boogeyman tales to tell their kids you know, stay out of the woods at night or, or don't wander away from the campfire. And I think that's very possible. But I'm of the mindset where even even if they're lore and legend, they're, they're, there's a, a nugget of truth in there somewhere, um, whether it's, it's something that got embellished and changed and, and um, twisted over the years uh, or if it's something that really was, in fact, an animal that existed, like the Thunderbirds, for example. Our Native American tribes talked about them, and you can find them in, in – 
history throughout not just the Native American lore, but around around the globe, um, mm-hmm. and the big cats and other other types of creatures. You know, they, they all seem to come from somewhere, and maybe they were animals that people weren't familiar with at the time, but we now know as bears and hawks and eagles and uh, mountain lions. They're familiar to us now, but back then they weren't. So they had this giant mountain lion running around the woods that they were terrified of. So they told their kids, hey, don't go out in the woods or the, the giant cat will get you. And the kids were so afraid that they kept them safe and home. Um, so I, I think that some of these tales may have an inkling or a nugget of truth to them. And perhaps over the years of being handed down through generations, you know, passing on the, the stories, they get twisted. And you guys are probably familiar with that with the ghost hunting. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, like absolutely. The House, for example, you know, how that story's been twisted and changed from probably what was the original happening at the house. There's always something that happens to change stories through history as, as you get passed on. Yeah, one of the uh, fascinating parts about our field is getting into some of those legends and trying to find that nugget of truth, you know, if there is one. Usually there is that one little nugget of truth, and it has been so far uh, distorted. Uh, we have a uh, $5 super chat from Tom McNicholas. He says, uh, Bigfoot, man or beast? <laughs> Thank you very much, Tom. Appreciate it. Um, interesting question here from Tammy Heitzman. She wants to know, has there ever been a sighting of a young or small Bigfoot? Yes. Um, there have been encounters reported. Um, people have claimed they've seen juvenile creatures. Um, there was a video that came out in the early 2000s, I think 2001 or 2002, um, in New York that reportedly showed what some people believe was a baby Bigfoot swinging from tree branches. Um, so people have claimed over the earth they've seen juveniles, infants, uh, even family pods of these creatures, a male, a female, and offspring together. So yes, and to answer your question, there have been. Very cool. Um, from Robert Hanna, has Eric gotten a lot of reports in the Wisconsin and Michigan area? Well, it's interesting that you asked that. Um, I know in northern Michigan there have been quite a number of sightings that have taken place. I'm um, familiar with the, the BFRO database. That's the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization database. And I know there are researchers, very good researchers in northern Michigan, that uh, have fielded a lot of encounters and reports. As far as Wisconsin goes, a very close friend of mine, Jay Bachochin, is working the kettle in southeastern Wisconsin, and uh, he's fielded quite a number of Bigfoot reports as well as had his own personal experiences out there. And I know other parts of the state as well as Wisconsin have uh, had their share of sighting reports. I've been there. I can actually see that. <laughs> I've been to Wisconsin, too. I spent a weekend last summer with Jay, and we had a, a really interesting experience in, in the, the Kettle Forest there. Um, uh, it's actually not too far from Bray Road, where the Beast of Bray Road was popularized. So, wow. Uh, yeah, pretty interesting interesting area out there for sure. Yeah, a number, a number of our Mad Hatters are from Wisconsin. It's a very nice state, for sure. It's it a is. beautiful state. Beautiful. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Uh, this is a good question from Shay. Shay Carroll asks, uh, what does Bigfoot research consist of? Where does it start? It starts with curiosity and uh, intrigue. Um, if you have a curiosity about the creature and you want to learn more, the best advice I can give anybody that wants to get in this field, before you go out in the woods and just start looking and talking to eyewitnesses, educate yourself. Pick up books credible by credible researchers such as John Green, Dr. Jeff Meldrum, Dr. John Bindernagel. Um, Dr. Bindernagel was a wildlife biologist. Dr. Meldrum is a uh, primatologist, well, a primate anatomy expert and an anthropologist. They've put out fascinating books on the subject, and there's so many great books out there, from Lauren Coleman to Ivan Sanderson. Um, there's just so many to even try to name, but start there looking into the research, reading books, educating yourself, becoming familiar with the research Um, learning about the reports, learning some of the habits that you'll pick up on, some of the descriptions. And then once you familiarize yourself with the subject matter, put your feet in the water, start doing some hikes in your local area, start putting the word out there that you want to research, talk to 
other people in the area that have researched and learned from them. I, I don't tell anybody to just jump in feet first because you'll never learn anything that way. <laughs> Do your homework first and then go out and research. Um, Eric, this might sound ridiculous, but I mean, I am a Southern girl, so I grew up in a hunting family. And I have to wonder if one of the reasons when people go out to try to find these creatures, one of the reasons that they don't is because you, you, you have to be talking about a species that is very adept at knowing when it's in danger. It's sense of hearing might be heightened. It's sense of smell would definitely be heightened as, as a defense mechanism, as would be its sight. I mean, is that something that people need to look at when they're out doing these hikes or trying to search and get evidence is the type of clothing they're wearing. Are they wearing any cologne? Do they need to put, you know, do they need to try to mask their scent in any way? Is this something that they need to look into as well? Well, that's a great question. And I would suggest that if you're going to go out in the field and do research to try to blend into your surroundings as much as possible. I'm a deer hunter. Mm -hmm. um, I've hunted for almost 20 years. I know that when I go out and if I'm wearing um, really strong, you know, body wash or any kind of scent like that, that the deer will pick up on it. So mm -hmm. it's basically common sense. You've got to, you got to prepare yourself when you go out there. Um, my, to be honest with you, my thinking and my, my perception has always been if there is a Bigfoot in your area and you're going out to research it, they know you're there as soon as you slam that car door shut. Yep. They can hear it. They know you're in, you're entering the woods and most researchers aren't, using good common sense when they go out to research. They're not being quiet. They're not, you know, being stealthy. They're not trying to, to mask or camouflage their scent. They're just going out there. And some researchers even say, hey, just be yourself when you go out there. Make noise. Bring the Bigfoot to you. Let them know that you're not out there to try to shoot them or kill them or you're trying to sneak around the woods. So it's all in the perception of, of you know, the person going out there, I guess. I personally, when I go out, um, I I used to go out and camouflage myself head to toe and, and try to use deer scent cover and um, wipes and stuff like that to, to kind of mask my smell. But over the years, I thought, well, that really didn't work well for me. So I just go out in normal street clothes and with hiking boots and, you know, prepare myself for the elements as necessary and, you know, coat and all that stuff. And I go out there and, and try to just walk down the trail and, and look un, un, unassuming and, and you know, harmless and hopefully I have some good luck. Um, it, unfortunately, the people have done it all the ways that I've described over the years. And I don't know too many of them had a lot of success doing it one way or the other. So True. I guess the long, short, long answer would be short answer would be do whatever you feel makes you most comfortable and, and hopefully you'll get lucky when you go out. Yeah. Makes sense. There you go. Um, Candy Orton's wondering, wondering about uh, evidence in Pennsylvania in New York. Have you got any recorded sounds or anything physical, anything like that? From York, PA? Uh, no, from New York and PA. Oh, from New York. Um, yeah, there's been some sounds recorded over the years. Um, I've recorded some things that, that are kind of off the wall. I've, I've actually published them on the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society website, um, which has now changed, but... Um, back in 2009, I recorded some really interesting calls and screams. We were doing a, a field investigation in 2009. Um, I know some other researchers have put out some um, strange sounds and audio recordings. Um, there's a really interesting one that came from Ohio um, from Matt Moneymaker in the mid-1990s. He recorded it's called the Ohio Howl. Um, that's pretty popular on YouTube and on the internet. If you do a research uh, search for it, you can find it. Um, there's really fascinating recording that was recorded by um, Ron Moorhead and Al Berry from uh, the early 1970s, like 72 through 74. And you can find them on the internet. It's called the Sierra Sounds. Um, he was with a uh, hunting party about eight miles deep into the, the mountains of the oh. Sierra. Bless you. Sierra Nevada mountains in Northern California and his, uh, at his camp, they recorded what he claims are interactions with the Bigfoot family of creatures. And, uh, that's probably the most popular recordings that are out there on the internet. They're called the Sierra sounds. Um, it's supposedly according to, um, Ron and, and late Al Berry, they were vocalizations or almost a language 
of these creatures communicating with each other as they they continually visited their hunting camp their hunting camp um, in the northern Sierra Nevada mountains. Nice, nice. Um, speaking of evidence, uh, Caro is asking: uh, Does Mr. Altman believe the Gimlin Patterson footage to be the holy grail of Bigfoot evidence, or there are other substantial evidence to prove its existence? Well, it, it's up up there as far as film evidence goes. It's probably the clearest um, and, and yet to be proven conclusive or inconclusive, I, I should say, or, or not inconclusive, but conclusive evidence or debunking as a hoax. It remains inconclusive. Um, it's, in my opinion, I wouldn't call it the Holy Grail because uh, for that reason it hasn't been proven one way or the other. Right. But it, it's probably the most clearest um, longest reigning footage that has yet to be proven one way or the other. Um, there's a lot of garbage that's out there that you look at and you're like, oh, wow, that's bad. <laughs> but of, of all the films that I've seen over the years that I've been in this, I would put that probably at the top of, of possible evidence. Okay. Okay. Um, this is a uh, interesting question here from Dawn. I like this one. So if you met Bigfoot and it could understand English, what would you ask? Uh, <laughs> why did you do this to me? <laughs> <laughs> All these years of research, yeah. <laughs> yeah, why have you done this to me? <laughs> uh, nice. that's a, that is a great question. Um and that's probably what I would ask it because it's been, uh, although it's been one of the most intriguing mysteries I've investigated for almost going on 40 years now, um, it, it's still frustrating and still leaves me with so many more questions. And, and like your show about being a rabbit hole, it, it's something that when I started this back when I was 10 years old, I would have never thought here at 48 going on 49 years old that I would still have so many questions unanswered. Yeah, it's uh, it's you know one of those massive mysteries, and you know you've you've dedicated a, a big part of your life to it. So yeah, it's impressive for sure. Um, this is from Donna Gorton. Uh, she says some people report. Uh, okay, it's okay. Some people report, but what does Eric feel is their family structures? I guess I'm not. Um. I have to think of this objectively and rationally when I get asked this question. Um, if these things have been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and long before we've been here, the Native Americans knew about it. We've, we've talked about it. There's newspaper reports in the 1800s, all the way up to modern times. There has to be a breeding population of these creatures, a sustainable breeding population to exist as long as they have, which means there has to be a male and female and offspring that continue to breed and, you know, they, these things continue right. to be around and reported. So I would have to say that there has to be uh, a male and female, the species that, that continue to breed and, and they have clans and you know families. And that's what I would think logically. That makes sense. Yep. I wonder if they live underground. That's one of the theories that people speculate that they are underground dwelling creatures. That's why we can't find them. They go into the caves and underground and stay there. I haven't seen enough proof to say yes, that's a good possibility, but people speculate that they go into holes and they that's where they live. That when you mentioned fracking earlier, that was kind of what made me think that cuz I'm like that would disturb if they were underground dwellers that would definitely disturb and it would disturb for miles, you know, in diameter. So that, that could be something that, that might have something to do with it. Again, just like you said, total speculation. I don't have a clue, you know? Yeah, And, and you also have to think with fracking comes encroachment. I mean, we're tearing down forests and clearing, clear cutting land yep. um, to go in there to, to drill and to build these huge wells and, you know, there's a lot of involvement and people are in the woods quite a bit so there's a lot of encroachment going on as well mm -hmm. it makes sense to me i just i am by no means 
ever hoping to be an expert on that. I, I don't have a clue, but it just, it kind of sparked something when you said that, made me wonder. An interesting side note, if I can throw this out there, something that I've, I've learned and picked up on, and, and as has Stan, and we've talked about this in great length, is it seems that sightings occur quite frequently around power sources hmm. or natural energy sources, such as water. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're reportedly seen quite frequently around gas wells. Um, electrical substations, cell phone towers, um, cut-throughs as far as gas gas lines or um, right-of-way lines through the forest. They've been seen quite frequently on that. And there's speculation as to why they're seen around those. Um, some people call them deer highways. They're easy access for animals to migrate back and forth through areas, um, especially through those power lines or gas well lines in the forest. Um, and they're easy um easy ways for these creatures to move if they're using them for that it would be easy ways for these creatures to move and migrate from place to place and be able to slip quickly into the woods if people are coming out in the forest you know using those maintenance workers or gas well workers or whatever Um, it's an easy you know if they're traveling those right away and someone comes along and it's easy for them to duck into the forest and not be seen so but we're getting reports of those um, these creatures being seen more and more frequently around uh, natural any energy sources such as waters, waterways, rivers, um, as well as what we're putting out there, the fracking, the the gas wells, the oil wells, the cut through lines, the power lines and stuff like that. That makes sense. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Oh, absolutely. Um, trying to sift through uh, the different <laughs> questions here we have a, people are really interested in this eric i don't know if we're gonna get to other cryptos tonight <laughs> we've got about 15 <laughs> minutes left and there's still a lot That's of questions so, yeah no yeah um so uh, from robert hannah since you're talking a little bit about uh sasquatch reproducing uh, do you believe uh female sasquatches have a lot to do with children going missing like in missing 411 cases it's hard to speculate on that. We don't know if people in the 411 cases are taken by Sasquatch. There's um, people that theorize that um, people are abducted. And there is a famous um, uh, Osterman case that took place. Albert Osterman um, was a, a prospector and a miner that went up into um, British Columbia um, to get away for a weekend. He was at, he claims he was actually abducted by a male Sasquatch and brought back to the family unit of a Sasquatch where he was, he claims he was brought there to reproduce with the, the young one of the family. He was held captive by this family of creatures for several days. Um, so it, it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility. Probability, uh, I don't know if the Bigfoot creatures are taking people. Um, okay. If that's the case, we'd find more evidence. When, when somebody disappears, we'd find tracks or, you know, some signs that Bigfoot creatures were in the area. I think the best person for that would be uh, uh, Mr. Polites. Um He would probably, Dave Polites would probably be able to answer that better than I could. He's written the books on the for, missing 411. But um, people go missing in the forests quite frequently, um, surprisingly. Um, and, and I don't know if it's, it's really easy to get lost. Yeah, it's yeah. just easy to get lost. Yeah, I don't. I don't mean any disrespect to the person that claimed that they were forced to fornicate with a Bigfoot, but it, what I'm finding surprising is is for a species to go out of their way to avoid us as a whole, to then seek one of us out to mate with just seems a bit far fetched. Yeah, I don't think that Mr. Ostman was making that claim that he was brought there, but. I think he was alluding to the fact that he was held captive and he felt that maybe he was brought there to breed with this young female Sasquatch. I don't think he ever really came right out and said that, but I I think he was alluding to it. And I don't think there's many people out there that have made that claim. Um, If they, if they, if there are, I'm not real familiar with, with them or their claim, but his case, it, it happened in the 1920s in 1923 when he claimed he was captured. And I think there was some discussion about that. He was alluding to it, but I don't think he ever came right out and, and made that claim. Okay. Gotcha. 
Um, Candy Orange wanted to know, when you go out looking, uh, do you go out when the ground is soft to be able to see tracks? So I guess what's your ideal situation for, for going out? Yeah, I think it's helpful. The, the, the best conditions are snow, obviously, to find tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it helps that the ground would be soft and muddy. You'd have a good, better chance of finding tracks than rocky, hard terrain. But unfortunately, in Pennsylvania, the ground's really not conductive or conducive to finding tracks. Um, we find a lot of deer tracks because they have hooves and hard feet, mm-hmm. or hard, hard you know, um, hooves that, that leaves a good track. And we do find some tracks of, of common animals, but uh, I think having a soft, muddy ground would be much more conducive than rocky terrain or leaf-littered terrain to find prints. I mean, I, I found huge-looking impressions in the ground that may or may not have been Bigfoot tracks, but they don't look like Bigfoot tracks that we're familiar with seeing the five toes or whatever, simply because the ground wasn't conducive for it. it in other words, it was hard, a lot of leaf litter, a lot of uh, rocky c- conditions that weren't conducive for leaving a good good footprint. So, yeah, I would think if you're out there looking for a, a good footprint that you could say, yeah, that looks like a Bigfoot track, the best conditions would be either snow or mud or soft soft soil. That makes sense. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. So... There's Robert Hanna is asking about a uh, theory about their eyes giving off a red glow at night. Is that one true? A lot of surprising, a lot of reports talk about these creatures having glowing green, red, amber eyes, yellow eyes. I know, um, we don't know if these creatures really give off a glowing eye or if it's a reflection from a flashlight, right. high beams from a car. I know deer have reflective eyes. A lot of nocturnal animals have reflective eyes when you shine a light on them. Um, But we do find over and over again in reports people saying that they had glowing eyes that seem to be self-illuminating. I don't know personally if that's something that the creatures have developed, maybe giving them a better eyesight at night. We don't know. But surprisingly, a lot of cases, especially in Pennsylvania that I'm familiar with, do report these glowing amber, red, or yellow, or even green eyes um, that people claim to see You know, when they, they have a Bigfoot encounter. I've personally seen eye reflection or eye shine, as we call it, mm-hmm. coming back through the forest when we're looking with uh, night vision or even thermal or, or flashlights used in the forest, we get an eye shine or, or something back. And it could be Bigfoot, it could be any common animal. They seem to refract or reflect light back at us. And again, I don't know if it's self-illuminating or if it's just a, a you know, cause of light that we're shining out there in the forests. Do you think that that is one reason why people might think they're interdimensional is based on that, um, similar to the Mothman? Um, and, you know, with the with the glowing red eyes. I mean, we seem to want to apply glowing eyes to something that we consider inhuman. And I'm just wondering well, if that's kind of why. Yeah, even with the Mothman case that, that took place in Point Pleasant, people described mm-hmm. that glowing red eyes, the big mm-hmm. glowing red eyes. And I don't know if it's something that just is is hysteria, mass hysteria related to the Mothman, related to Bigfoot. I honestly don't know if that's a trait of being an interdimensional being. Um, it could be. <laughs> it's, it's hard to, to make a call on that. Um, but they seem to pop up. Um, they pop up with the Mothman case as well as they do with Bigfoot. And it, it could be something related to interdimensional. We just don't know. True. So I'm just I- trying to find a link. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I have a couple questions here that I'm going to kind of lump together because they're related. So Don is wondering if anyone uses a drone to hunt for Bigfoot. And Don is wondering what kind of equipment uh, you use when you go out looking. Um, yeah, as we move into the more and more technical uh, availability of equipment, drones have become something that a lot of Bigfoot researchers are using to cover large areas and to be able to see the forest from a bird's eye view is much more helpful than somebody just walking through the woods. It allows you to see much more. And I know there are researchers out there who are taking advantage of that. 
with high definition cameras and flying drones around. Um, I personally, I, I've used drones. Um, I've lost a drone there because once you get up, <laughs> up into the air current, <laughs> see you later. It can happen. It <laughs> Unless can happen, you have a yeah. GPS tractor on that tracker on that drone, you're probably not going to find it again. So it does help to have a drone, but it also can be a hindrance, especially if you go out in the wrong conditions. Um, I personally use uh, FLIR night vision uh, equipment when I go out because that allows you to see heat signatures in the forest, and that's much easier to use, especially at night, than just standing there looking out the, 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 to the darkness and not seeing anything. That'll help you probably identify what's out there much more than than uh, night vision, because um, night vision, I'll be honest, can be pretty expensive to get some high, good quality um, night vision gear. If you're yeah. looking third or fourth generation, and that's thousands of dollars. And unfortunately, Bigfoot Research isn't uh, privately funded by corporations. <laughs> um, it's privately funded by us. Right. <laughs> so um, I try to use what I can afford to use, and that's uh, the handheld um, either night vision monocular or night vision thermal FLIR scout that I have. Um, I use the best tool that I use when I go out in the woods is common sense, to be honest with you. Um, there you go. Any any That's number of cameras or yeah, <laughs> any number of cameras or high definition equipment or you can spend thousands and thousands of dollars when you go out in the forest. But if you don't know what you're doing out there, you don't know you're not using good common sense. It's all a waste of money. Yeah, very true. Very true. Hey, before we uh, wrap it up, because we are actually getting down toward the end of the show, and we've been exclusively uh, uh, Bigfoot, um, except I think the one question that. Uh, Vanessa had so um, other than Bigfoot like what what other cryptids have piqued your interest um, well Vanessa brought up the Mothman and I've been mm -hmm. fascinated by the whole Mothman phenomenon for uh, a long time as well that I think that would be my second favorite cryptid um, if, if the Mothman truly is a cryptid um, I find that whole that whole story that whole era that whole phenomenon fascinating because they're not dealing with just a cryptid you're dealing with ufos and strange lights yeah you're dealing with the the poltergeist phenomenon that went on the men in black um there's a variety of different strange phenomena that took place during that time period in, in 1966 67 um in point pleasant west virginia there's so much involved in the mothman phenomenon yeah there's such really a variety and so many different sightings it is actually really fascinating yeah there's it's not just the mothman there was so right. much more to that whole whole story and that whole phenomena that took place i find that completely fascinating plus uh, i'm also fascinated by um the thunderbirds that are reportedly sighted across the country these large winged creatures that have a wingspan of anywhere from six to 20 feet in length and these are much larger birds than, than are typically reported or commonly reported um, i'm also a fan of, of aquatic cryptids um, lake monsters, if you will, mm -hmm. and there's quite a number of those throughout the United States and throughout the world that fascinate me. Um, you know, Champ and Nessie and Ogopogo and, and, and Ray. We have Raystown Lake here in Pennsylvania. The people who claim they've seen a, an aquatic cryptid in, in Raystown Lake, and they call it Raystown Ray. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a variety of different cryptids that really fascinate me. This whole new thing that's come out quite quite a bit recently the dogman phenomenon yeah people are claiming yeah. to see an upright walking canine and and i've been to bray road uh, with jay bachocha my a very good friend of mine uh dear friend of mine that he's taken me out to bray road and linda godfrey and i are very good friends and we've talked about the great the beast of bray road and the dogman phenomenon that's catching on from northern michigan and wisconsin where it, it seemed to originate and now it's being reported all over the country yeah, it's really interesting the uh, number of different types of uh, uh, creatures that are possibly out there, the reports and, and sightings. And, you know, a lot of these things, you know, they were out there years ago and, you know, kind of got, you know, pushed on the back burner. And now, I I, I mean, maybe that's one of the, the things where uh, technology has been a uh, you know, blessing rather than a hindrance is, you know, the people that yeah. are able to come together uh, on these different sightings and reports. Yep, I agree. I agree so, completely. Yeah. So, what do you have? Uh, what do you have going on? You have uh, some events going on. Uh, what's up? 
Yeah, I have a a Bigfoot event coming up um, actually in May, late May, early June, called the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Camping Adventure. I've been hosting the event now the last, since 2016. We did one in 2016 and 2017. We're doing one in 2019. And uh, it's it's kind of an outdoor Bigfoot festival, charity fundraiser event. Uh, We've got 12 speakers. We've got guest celebrities coming in, the Mountain Monster guys, uh, the Ames team from the TV show Mountain Monsters. We've got Cliff Berkman from Finding Bigfoot. Um, Jeff Meldrum, who I mentioned earlier, is going to be there. Uh, Jay Bachochin is going to be one of the speakers at the event that I've mentioned his name on the show. Um, It's it's a fun festival for the family to get together, to come out learn about Bigfoot research, to talk to uh, researchers, to talk to some celebrities that have been on TV or documentary films. Um, to, to learn about Bigfoot itself, to get out there and to get your hands into the research, to go on a Bigfoot hike if you want to. And it's all for charity. We're raising um, funds for three local charities in southwestern Pennsylvania. So uh, I've got that coming up May 31st, June 1st, and June 2nd. And uh, if people want to learn more about that, they can uh, check out the website, which is pabigfootcampingadventure.com. Um, we're almost sold out of tickets and, uh, we still have some left though. If people want to get involved in that, but cool. I've been doing that. I've been doing field research as much as my, um, my getting old body, if you will, <laughs> will let me. <laughs> so, uh, going on 22 years now of uh, actual field research and close to 40 years of studying the phenomenon. I keep myself pretty busy with it. Fantastic. Don't stay old. I try yeah, to you're not old yet. <laughs> yes. And I'm not I'm getting old there. Yet. I'm getting there. <laughs> I feel old. <laughs> That's a better way to put it. <laughs> so we have a lot of people down there saying like B3 Airspace saying Eric Altman is an awesome guest. Bring him back. Yeah, uh, definitely a great time. How else can people find you? Your your uh, website. It's uh, Eric Altman. Yeah, um, Eric Altman dot net. Dot net. Um, okay. Although it's, it's sadly needing um, updated and, and I haven't really done much with the website because I've been busy with events and, and really getting them boots on the ground and out in the woods and and investigating and stuff like that. I try to keep low key as much as possible. Not because I, I mean, it's nice to get your name out there, but I'd rather be out there doing the research and Mm -hmm. and doing the field work and stuff like that than worrying about making a name for myself. Uh, If I come up with something that's worthy of putting out there for the public, I do. And, And I'm more, more apt to doing field research and, and, you know, trying to raise money for charities, doing events that, that do that and stuff like that. So um, I'm not a real popular figure as much as I used to be um, to try to keep it low key, I guess. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, Eric, we absolutely appreciate it. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get to our shout outs here real quick before we wrap up and get ready for Inside the Upside Down, where tonight we are going to be talking about hoaxes, frauds and urban legends. So uh, that'll be an interesting show. Um, we had, uh, Tammy Heitzman, David Y and Tom McNicholas. They are our super chat superstars for this evening. Thank you very much. You three absolutely appreciate that. Uh, let's get to the, uh, shout outs here. So, uh, Shauna, our chat shenanigator, thank you very much for handling the chat down there this evening. Uh, let's see. We had we had a lot of people in the chat this evening, so that was fantastic. So we had uh, B3 Airspace. Uh, we had Beyond the Light Network. That's Chuck Banks. We had Dustin Samario. Thank you very much, Dustin. EQEQ. Thanks for joining us again. Fran Molino. Thank you as well. There's Joe Chandler. Thanks, Joe. Uh, John Spike Explorer. Thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, John Cairo. Thanks for the questions. Appreciate that. Katie Palmer, thank you again very much. Robert Hanna, thank you as well. Chanel F., thank you. Um, he had some questions too. There's uh, Shay, appreciate uh, you being out here again tonight. Shay, Spooky, Dawn, appreciate your questions as well. There's the Haglin, thank you very much. Uh, Variety Multimedia, that's Candy Orton. Thanks, Candy. William Bennett, uh, appreciate it. And Zoe Small, thank you as well. That's the list. And, uh, of course, we had others <laughs> like Tammy Heitzman, oh, yeah. um, Tom McNicholas. Uh, there's Charla Kane. Thank you very much, Charlin. Uh, little little door, at least. That's why I know that the list is not all-inclusive because there's other people there in the chat. Uh, there's Judy Wilson. There was over 50 people. In yeah, there. yeah, we had a lot of people. So, um, so we thank you all very, very much. Uh, real quick, deep down the rabbit hole, Patreon patrons. Um, 
That's Tom McNicholas, B3 Airspace, Zippy Davis, BD Flint, uh, Joe Chandler, Pamela Queen, uh, Andrew Cox, and Dustin Samario. Thank you all very, very much. So, Eric, had a great time. We'll have you back hey, thanks, on. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. I had a lot of fun. And, yeah, anytime you want to talk cryptids or anything like that, hit me up, let me know, and uh, we'll figure figure out the schedule. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely set up another one, get to uh, some other cryptids since we were we were pretty much exclusively Bigfoot on this one. They all had a bunch of great, great questions. So, uh, yeah, we'll definitely have you back. It was fun. I appreciate all the questions, and thanks for having me. All right, absolutely. Thank you. Have a good one, everyone. We'll all see you in a few minutes. Take care, Eric. You too. Have a good night. Right, later. And everybody else, Inside the Upside Down, coming up next.